When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea, immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. The first season of The Passenger premieres February 27th. Subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And today you're getting initiated into the Mile High Club of Awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Mile High Club of Sexism and sexual harassment and beauty norms and expectations. Uh, we're, we're talking about flight attendants. Come fly the sexist skies. Yeah, and I, I have to say I, I did a little interview with my mother um, uh, about about this topic. She's been a Delta flight attendant for 48 years. Whoa. Uh, she basically hates people now. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry to say she's a great person. She's really fun and silly, but um, her her uh, love of humanity has definitely faded because of nearly 50 years of putting up with passengers and pilots. Why does she still do it? Well, a I think she doesn't want to give up working. I think she just loves to work. She loves to have a purpose and go to a job. Um, but I also think she has so much fun. With her friends, my mother um, flies to Germany every month. So if you've ever flown to Stuttgart or Munich, she's probably been one of your flight attendants. Look for the little tag that says Sally. That's her. There was actually, um, I think I mentioned this on social media, and I may have mentioned it on the podcast before, but there was a Sminty listener and her husband, I think, coming back from their honeymoon in Europe. And they heard my mother talking to a f- another passenger about what you and I do. And they were like, oh, wait, you're Sally? <laughs> Sally's famous. Sally's famous. Um, yeah, I think she I think she loves what she does. I think she loves to be able to fly into Germany, uh, go downstairs and get her dinner and her glass of wine, hang out at the bar. Like the whole hotel staff knows all of these Delta women. Um, she's even this trip that she's leaving for today, the day that we're recording. Um, yes, it's a regular trip, but they're also going to be celebrating the Delta flight attendants are going to be celebrating this guy, Tommy, who lives in Munich or Stuttgart. Sorry. He lives in Germany and he is the guy who was in charge of catering the, the airplanes, the Delta airplanes in Germany. And he's retiring or, or they're replacing him or something. And After so, how long? Oh, I don't know. Years, 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 years. But all of these Delta flight attendants are getting together and uh, going to his party. Oh. And I just love that. It's like, it's, uh, it's family. 
And that's kind of how my mother described it when I was asking her about why Delta still has not accepted a union for flight attendants. The Delta pilots are part of DALPA, which is the Delta Airline Pilots Association. And the flight attendants have never unionized, despite the fact that Delta has gobbled up multiple airlines um, with flight attendants who were previously in unions. And the way that my mother put it was basically, Delta's a family, and we get whatever the pilots get from their union and, you know, essentially finger wag, like, we don't want these people coming in here, kids today, telling us how to run our airline and... They're definitely in the minority, as we'll find out in terms of labor representation in the airline industry. So the motivation, though, for talking to your mom about her experience as a Delta flight attendant for almost 50 years Mm -hmm. was wanting to get a firsthand take on a lot of the tropes that we hear about in terms of the early days of of flight, where stewardesses, as they were known back then, were really there more as eye candy than as flight attendants. Right. Well, that's the assumption. I mean, as we're going to go through with some of this uh, labor and activism history with flight attendants, they have been fighting tooth and nail pretty much since the get-go to be taken seriously. And there has been a lot of damage done over the past decades, over the past forever, in terms of how long flight attendants have been around, in terms of marketing. Airlines have purposely marketed their flight attendants as sex objects in order to say, like, look at this great service you're going to get, wink, wink, on your flight. And I was asking my mother about sexual harassment, and I thought that her response was so enlightening. Um, because when I said, you know, did you ever deal with sexual harassment? She's like, oh no. And I was like, okay, well, that can't be true. But, um, well, you know, did anyone ever act in a way that, you know, was too sexual or made you uncomfortable? Did anyone ever grab your butt? Did, you know, did they say anything to you? And she said, well, I mean, there's not a lot that I would want to tell you, dot, dot, dot. But, um, she's like, it just wasn't sexual harassment back then. My mother started flying when she was 20 years old. She left college because she wanted to go have a more glamorous life in Atlanta as an Atlanta-based Delta flight attendant, y'all. And, yeah, she's right. Back then, it wasn't sexual harassment. We hadn't had Anita Hill yet. There There were no laws protecting women who were working these aisles on these flights. Did the term even exist when she was flying? Exactly. No. And, um... I said, well, you know, did you have to deal with gross passengers? Because that's what we hear most about, being on the outside of the airline. And she said, you know, no. And if they ever said anything, um, you know, I'd make sure they never said anything again. And my mother is a bit of an outlier because what you have to understand about Sally is that she is a tough effing cookie. And she is skilled at being able to say something with a smile and reduce you to rubble. And she said that where it really came in and was most annoying was from the pilots because the pilots also treated the flight attendants like the sex objects they're marketed as. And that wasn't even necessarily always physical. It was more jokes, comments. And um, I said, well, you know, were they funny? Did you laugh or were they bothersome? Were they offensive? And she said, you know, they were always terrible and gross. And she said, you know, I would just tell them, um, you know, I don't really like jokes with with a meaningful stare. That's a terrific <laughs> response, especially in the era before you could say, oh, actually, that is sexual harassment, not a joke. 
I love that. Right. And um, she said, yeah, they, they immediately learned. And when everybody would board a flight, because you would fly with the same pilots, the same crew over and over and over again when you got on the same consistent schedule. And she said that, you know, the flight attendants would be getting on board and the pilots would say, oh, there's Sally. You know, don't even bother. She doesn't think this is funny. And eventually just less and less and less and less in general. Well, and the whole twist to this whole flight attendant or stewardess back then as mm-hmm. sex object scenario is that originally stewardesses were stewards. Right. Yeah, the first ever flight attendants were men. It's shocking. It goes against all of our, all of our stereotypes. I know. I, I love the photo of the world's first flight attendant, literally the world's first flight attendant, uh, that Dan Grossman over at airships.net love it. dug up. A guy named Heinrich Pubis, who <laughs> worked in a, uh, not a blimp. What is it called? Zeppelin. A Zeppelin. Thank you. This is Zeppelin. He worked in, he worked in a Led Zeppelin. <laughs> um, and he's standing there looking like a proper butler, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> surrounded by all of these tables with people just loving their time in Zeppelins. Yeah. Just picture the scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. No ticket. Although I doubt Heinrich threw anyone out of the Zeppelin. No, he was too busy yeah. know, making sure that dinner was served correctly. Uh, but speaking of Indiana Jones, Ole Heinrich survived the Hindenburg explosion. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. So he had started working for this German blimp company in 1912. Uh, people are like, it's not a blimp, it's a Zeppelin. I know, I know. Um, but he actually headed up a team of 10 to 15 cooks and stewards. And yeah, they were, they were all men because that's how it was on steamliners. Uh-huh. And that's how it was on rail. There were men in those, you know, lovely white jackets. Like the Pullman Porters. Yeah. Same same idea because, well, this has been our transportation and the way we've done things forever. Why would we have it be any different? You know, why would we have women coming on board to serve people? That doesn't make any sense. And in the 1920s, once people were like, um, maybe these giant balloons <laughs> are a little too flammable. <laughs> Passenger air travel gets underway, and the first flight attendants in the U.S. were really couriers, and they, they were like uh, Donald Trump juniors. They were the sons of the guys who financed the airlines. Yeah, so just imagine Donald Trump Jr. carrying his elephant tail and, like, handing you a cocktail. Oh. That was sort of the idea. I would then take my cocktail and be like, thank you, throw it in your face. Yeah, ooh, ooh, exactly. Gin, it burns the eyes. Ah, yes. Um, also at this time in the, in the 1920s in the United Kingdom, Imperial Airways hired what they called cabin boys. Oh, like <laughs> cabin boys today. Okay. Ooh. I don't know why that just sounds so, it sounds so fun. Yeah. Well, it um, sounds like a pool boy. Oh, true. You know, but a, but a cabin. But, and cabin maybe boy. wearing like a smart nautical uh, themed suit somehow. Oh, I was thinking, you know, cabin boy, a little woodsy, lumberjack oh, situation, okay. short shorts and flannel. Sir, why are you carrying an axe on the plane? <laughs> um, well, then, of course, we have uh, the stock market crash and no more couriers. And instead, you've got the co-pilot, poor guy, who has to not only be there in the supporting role to the pilot, but he also has to serve the drinks and the food to the passengers. Man, it's hard out there for a (laughs) co-pilot. Let me tell you. And then in the 1930s, though, Western Air was the first to hire stewards. 
to help passengers board, help them with luggage. They served meals, and they not only made sure that your cigarettes and cigars were out, but they made sure that you would not open the window to throw them out because you have to keep in mind this is early, early air travel. You weren't in those jets that you would take to fly from New York to San Francisco today. This is kind of a rough ride in, in an airplane that flies really low and really slow, and I don't think they even crested 3,500 feet. Yeah, the cabins weren't even pressurized by that point. Yeah, so if it dropped suddenly, which they were wont to do, uh, your eardrums would surely suffer. Um, but basically, these these dudes, these stewards, were expected to be kind of traditionally masculine style icons. Okay, they weren't meant to be style icons, but they were because you have aviation's association with war and engineering, so it only made sense to have stewards staffing the cabin who were dressed in military-inspired gear. And that's definitely trickled down. It's why you see flight attendants still wear their little wings. It's why some of the uniforms still have epaulettes and, you know, they had hats with at jaunty angles. Fins and bobs. <laughs> Oodles and doodles. Who's it's and what's it's. Guys love bedazzling their uniforms, don't you know? <laughs> but there were plenty of feminine attributes to, to the job, serving food being just one of them. Um, taking care of passengers in general was feminine, quote unquote. And soon, because of that, the job itself became feminized. And by 1936, when Eastern Airlines said that it was creating a male-only flight attendant corps, the men were being referred to as male hostesses. Uh-oh. It was already so gendered by that point to be an air hostess that the men were like, oh, well, you're a male hostess. And masculinity so fragile, we can't have that. Uh, so when that happened, though, that was 1936. But six years earlier, in 1930, we have America's first female flight attendant, or stewardess, arrive on the scene. And Mary Ellen Church really finagled her way in. She had to essentially work her way around through beyond sexism because she was a trained pilot. She was a licensed pilot. She was a registered nurse. Um, so she could fly a plane, but of course no one wanted a Mary to fly a plane. So she was like, okay, okay, okay. How can I get around this? I really want to do air travel. Oh, well, why don't I suggest that it would be a good idea to have not only a registered nurse on board, but also a woman hostessing because everyone's still kind of nervous about how dangerous air travel is. But if a woman's up there doing it, then men can't say they're too nervous <laughs> to fly. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's exactly her quote. She said, don't you think that it would be good psychology to have women up in the air? How is a man going to say he's afraid to fly when a woman is working on the plane? And Boeing is like, okay, sure, whatever. We'll, we'll do this trial. They hire eight women, including Mary, uh, as a three-month experiment, because who knows what might happen to a woman's body. Oh, did, did, how many tampons do they need to take with them? <laughs> so four of the eight flew from San Francisco to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Four others flew from Cheyenne to Chicago. And it was such a hit. It went over so well, because, I mean, keep in mind, they're, they're nurses, they're women, they're comforting you and bringing you drinks. 
um, that the experiment turned permanent. And not only did those eight stay on, but other air carriers started to recruit their own nurse people, well, nurse women, to work the aisles. I prefer uh, gender-neutral nurse humans. Nurse humans. Thank you. Um, but even from the get-go, their uniform was very stylized. They'd often be wearing a nurse's uniform, sometimes accessorized with a snappy beret and cape. I love it. They were really making capes happen. Yeah, and I mean, the, the nurse's uniform was so intentional. I mean, like, there's no reason. Yeah, just because you're a registered nurse working on a flight to put people at ease and potentially attend to emergencies, there's no reason you should necessarily have to dress like one. I mean, you could wear a, a suit. They should have had them, like, dressed in surgeon's scrubs, <laughs> like the, the masks on and everything. Yeah. It would have gone over so well. But, I mean, instantly, instantly, how flight attendants look is part of marketing. It's part of saying, hey, passengers. And granted, this was still the 30s. This was so exclusive. You didn't just have, like, Ma and Pa from down the street flying on airplanes. But it was a way to ensure these clearly upper crust, important people that they were in good hands. Um, but even as far back as 1938, Time magazine was reporting on the lay of the land for flight attendants, stewardesses. I'm sorry, I, I have literally been trained my entire life not to say stewardess, so it sounds like I'm using a dirty word when I say it. So I'm just going to keep saying flight attendant, even though it's anachronistic. Um, but in 1938, Time reported that... Uh, Women were making 100 to $120 a month as flight attendants. Um, applicants for the 300 stewardess posts that existed at the time had to be pretty, petite, single, graduate nurses between 21 and 26 years old and between 100 and 120 pounds, depending on your height. Uh, and the whole being white thing was just implied, I guess I should go ahead and say. Right. Well, and they wouldn't explicitly say you need to be a white Christian, mm, yeah. um, but it would come up in requirements such as, are your hands fair yeah. and soft? Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, exactly. We know what that means. Do you ever eat a Seder? Oh, really? Oh, no, I'm making oh. that up. Oh, man, I totally fell for it just because the requirements to be a flight attendant were crazy. Yeah, and anti-Semitism was just raging at the yeah. time. I, I saw some quote that was like, yeah, I think I knew one Jewish girl. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> well, and the, the weight requirement, though, they tried to get away with that by saying, listen, extra pounds. We can't be carrying all that weight up in the air. Yeah. Our planes can't handle it. Well, and I mean, obviously, that was mostly because of marketable sex appeal, for sure. Um, but you have to look at the job, because they weren't just there for eye candy. They cleaned the cabin. They helped fuel the planes, often forming a bucket brigade I love that. of fuel. They would make sure to bolt down the seats before takeoff, which is a very vitally important task, I would think. Um, they would also be and were expected to be first responders in the case of a passenger health emergency or like a, a whole plane emergency, like the case of 22-year-old TWA flight attendant Nellie Granger, who not only helped critically injured passengers when a 1936 flight crashed, but had to walk through the snow to the nearest town to go get help. And I really love how TWA was like, oh, 
Nellie, thank you. You're going on a cruise. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. They rewarded her with a cruise. Oh. Which, cool, I guess? It's There's no snow there. True. And also, no airplanes on a cruise ship. Well, when we get to the 40s, as we often do in Stuff Mom Never Told You, you've got World War II, all right? And this really serves to solidify the gendering of flight attendants, even more so than it had been already. Um, you have, first of all, a lot of the nurses who'd been serving as flight attendants leaving to aid the war effort. Um, and pretty much any man who was working as a steward hightailed it off to war as well. And all of these men and women were replaced by female non-nurses. And even though after the war it was considered patriotic to try to rehire all these stewards who'd returned home, um, you had a lot of gender BS, basically. A lot of people like, ooh, you're in a woman's job. And so there were all of these weird suspicions already tied up in your sexual orientation if you were a man trying to get a job as a steward. Yeah, I didn't realize that the stereotype of the gay male flight attendant goes back to World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, around that time, and this is something we've talked about on the podcast a lot before, around that time with men returning to roles that women had been holding for the entire war, you see this like uptick in essential masculinity, uh, the need to define yourself as a masculine man, head of the household, women go back to your sphere. Basically, society's sort of in an upheaval, kind of turbulent period with, you know, women wearing pants, man. They had to wear pants for work. Usually their husbands, these men were coming home being like, you you sewed all of my pants weird. Um, and you've also come out of the early 1900s, the 20s, and Freud, who'd put forth all of these theories about anal retentiveness and um, theories about sexual orientation and deviance. So this is just like a like a super traditionalist masculine kind of period. And it took no time at all for that stereotype to yield some stats. By 1966, only 4% of flight attendants are men. And of the women, the, the, the 96% others who are women, of course, in addition to being very white and very slim and very pretty, you could not be married uh, and you could not have kids because the whole pitch, the whole marketing pitch was, fellas, uh, if you see something you like, you might be able to take her home. Uh, Yeah, duty free. Yeah, you can get a bottle of perfume on the plane, maybe a wife, who knows. But that, of course, meant high turnover. Um, Women would typically stay in the role of flight attendant for like two years. And honestly, that was my mother's goal, too. The woman who's been working for 48, she was like, I'm going to go to Atlanta. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to put on that pastel suit with that hat. And I'm going to get me a a husband, maybe a lawyer, passenger, maybe a pilot. I don't know. Yeah, she did eventually. But she's like, I can't wait to quit six months from now. I'll just be a wife. And that was like 40 years ago. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was almost 50 years ago. Um, because once she got the husband, she was like, well, I don't want to stay home with my husband all day. (laughs) 
Um, all right. And so the, the industry's changing after World War II. The technology's improving. Thank God we have cabin, cabin pressurization at this point. Faster planes that can carry more people, but it's still really pricey to fly. Um, and so it is still a fancy, glamorous, very exclusive thing. Um, but this is also post-war when you start to see the emergence of Unions and women flight attendants trying to get organized. Yeah, I mean, because we should say that getting the job as a flight attendant was harder at that time than getting into Harvard. So a lot of women did want these jobs, and the pay wasn't amazing, but it was better than you would probably make as a teacher or as a clerk at a store. And it was glamorous. A lot of women bought into the marketing themselves and really wanted to be able to travel the world. There is a great tearjerker of a video that Delta put out um, on their website, and I, it, it's, I, I totally teared up watching it. And it's an interview with one of their first ever flight attendants, Paige Jones, who attended Wesleyan. Um, in Georgia, you know, she's, she's so smart. She's going to be a teacher. Her friend is like, well, Paige, let's go to Atlanta and try to be one of those flight attendants. Was her friend Sally? (laughs) (laughs) And, and she's like, oh, I, I don't know about that. I'm going to be a teacher. She tells her mother and her mother's like, Paige, do it. You might never have a chance to travel like this ever again. And so from 1943 to 1946, Paige Jones worked as a flight attendant because she wanted to just see the world, to travel, to have these exotic, amazing experiences. And, of course, she married a pilot, which is how it goes uh, when you work at an airline and uh, had to retire. Man, because she got married. Yeah. and But her husband stayed on as a Delta pilot. She had to return home to be a wife. How did she feel about that? She... There is no hint of sadness, bitterness, angriness, or anything when you watch this video. She is so happy to be part of this airline family. Um, and so she seems so grateful and, and happy that she was on the front lines of airline history and still considers herself a Delta family member. And it does seem like with all of this, there is that dichotomy of... These women and men still today, you know, but but looking at this earlier history, who really wanted this life. And there were a lot of amazing things and amazing opportunities that came with it. But then on the flip side of it, you have all of the not so wonderful things that go along with it, like the men's only flights that United would offer so that they could just get uh excellent the most excellent service and not have to worry about sitting next to women also they served steak dinners yeah man i mean you could, you used to get like a six course dinner on a white tablecloth not these days tell you what spirit <laughs> air charge you for a spoon <laughs> Well, part of this changing environment was, of course, the emergence of unions. In 1945, a group of, speaking of United, United Flight Attendants organized the Airline Stewardesses Association, which was the first uh, flight attendant labor union in the United States. And they were pretty successful. They won voluntary recognition from the company. They achieved pay raises, duty hour limits, and the right to see their personnel and grievance records, which is totally a thing that I would think that we take for granted today, but they had to fight for it back then. 
But not just a year later, maybe not even a full year, in 1946, the Airline Pilots Association, which is the pilots' union, created a rival and better-funded flight attendant union called the Airline Stewards and Stewardesses Association that was sort of this subordinate branch within ALPA. And in 1949, the two flight attendant unions merged under ALSA, the Airline Stewards and Stewardesses Association, which then ended up representing two-thirds of the workforce or 3,500 flight attendants on 16 airlines. And let me tell you, and we'll revisit this in a little bit, but there were a lot of misgivings, a lot of women in leadership of that separate independent union that was independent from ALPA were like, I don't really think we should be falling under... Men under the pilots, because maybe that's patronizing. I don't know. So, but we'll revisit that in a little bit. Anyway, in 1951, Alsa does get to vote in their own officers for the first time. They choose a woman president, Mary Alice Coos, and really focused in on this goal of getting federal certification for flight attendants for their safety qualifications, which. Was one of the steps in the effort to be taken seriously. It was one of the first big major steps toward this because getting licensed by the government essentially would be proof of their importance in passenger safety, just as important as a pilot who flies the plane or the mechanic who fixes it, and it would guarantee that their training and hopefully their compensation would reflect that really vital role in passenger safety. And I'm like, can we talk to Nettie Granger? Like, we already know that flight attendants are vital to passenger safety, and they came up against not only patronizing pilots, but also patronizing regulators who said that licensing such a high turnover group would not prevent an emergency. They're like, why would we want to give you licenses and make you super duper official when you're just going to go quit and get married and have babies? And it's like, dudes, 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 the high turnover rate is because you make us quit. <laughs> When we get married, and I'm sure there were plenty of women who would want to quit when they got married, but I'm sure that there were equally plenty of women who would have loved to keep working because it was such a glamorous job at the time. Well, and even if you don't get married, most airlines had the age cut off between 32 and 35, which means that I'm pushing it. <laughs> 31. My the clock is ticking. Oh no, I'd be out already. But I mean, this is an aspect of flight attendant history that totally gets short shrift mm -hmm. um, and is overshadowed by all of the sexy sex times and the <laughs> uniforms and oh the sexism and the, all this stuff. But here you have sisters doing it for themselves who are literally professionalizing this new job. Mm -hmm. And I realize as you were talking, this is the only history of professionalization that I think we've talked about on Sminty where uh, it didn't then turn into a masculinized job. But since you already have the hierarchy of male pilots at the top, that established a glass ceiling. Yeah. And you know what? Side note, speaking of pilots and glass ceilings, I was when I was poking around for sources on flight attendants and labor unions and such, I came across a kind of an industry blog, so to speak. Uh, it had some articles. Definitely there were some interviews where they talked to a lot of people in the industry. And there was one particular article that was about, you know, um, how do pilots 
succeed in their family lives when they're away, you know, uh, looking at divorce rates and stuff like that. And the picture accompanying the article was a, a man, a male pilot, because that's just what you think when you think of a pilot. Literally the first, like, five people, the five pilots interviewed in that article were women. And I'm, like, sitting at my desk, like, yeah, fist pumping. Like, yes, more representation for women pilots. But I am sitting here cringing because they're only spotlighting women because it's a question of how you do it all. How do you balance work <laughs> and life? Well, it kind of, it, yes, you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, I was so excited, though, that they were even talking to all of these female pilots. I mean, they talk to male pilots, too. I know, I know. I, if you could see Kristen's face. I'm, give, I'm, I'm giving a, a feminist uh, what is this called? What is my face doing? I know. It's scowl. A squint. What is a, win- a wince? Squint. Squint. I'm giving Caroline a, a feminist squint I right know, now. I know. I didn't even think about it when I was reading it. I was honestly just so excited for the representation. And they weren't even talking about, like, I don't think balance was used. I don't think they were talking about household duties. But there was a lot of talk about divorce and anywho. Oh, I bet. End of my side note. But that's just an, an, another layer of gendering within the industry. I mean, it's a yeah. very, very gendered industry. Oh, for sure. Um, and we've talked a lot about gender. But when we come right back from a quick break, we're going to get back to racism. So stay tuned. Bolt down your seats, folks, because it's still a bumpy ride. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's rosewater collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them. So that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. Okay, the new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman have never been more hilarious as America's favorite moms turned gangsters, Beth, Ruby, and Annie. Already this season, there have been some big twists and breathtaking surprises. The fans love it, and the critics do, too. Variety calls good girls addictive and audacious. Entertainment Weekly says it's just what you need, and Rotten Tomatoes certifies good girls 100% fresh. So, if you've missed any of the new season, get yourself online and stream it now. And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. So we're back. Um, And like Kristen said, we've obviously got to talk about the racial and racist aspect of flight attendant rules, regs, and expectations. Um, and a lot of this, we've got to give a shout out to Kathleen Barry, who wrote the book, 
<laughs> Femininity in Flight, A History of Flight Attendants. It's really a great resource talking about everything from sexism to racism, union history, everything. It's it's a great resource for this episode and just if you're curious about the industry in general. But, um, you know, when we enter the 1950s and 60s, things are slowly starting to change. Some things are getting worse, like the clothes are getting even sexier and tighter and shorter. Um, but, you know, you've got union representation growing and you have the racist segregation slowly starting to be broken down. And in 1957, a woman by the name of Ruth Carol Taylor, who's an African-American nurse, was the first to push back against discriminatory hiring practices. She applied to be a flight attendant at TWA, and I think kind of knowing that she would get rejected, and for sure they did. Um, and when they turned her down, she immediately turned around and filed a complaint with the New York State Commission on Discrimination. Uh, at the same time, she hears that local carrier Mohawk Airlines is specifically looking to hire women of color. So she applies there, she gets hired, and she therefore becomes the first African-American flight attendant in February 1958. Big news, huge news. Still just one woman. Uh, three months later, though, TWA... <laughs> I guess they were like, oh, should we? I don't know. They hire Margaret Grant, making her the first African-American flight attendant for a major airline. So one thing, though, that we should note about Ruth Carol Taylor was that she did not dream of having the glamorous life of a flight attendant. She could kind of care less. She just wanted to break the color line. Mm. She came at it from a very intentionally activist perspective because it was so glaringly obvious to her and a lot of other groups at the time, like the Urban League and the NWCP, that even though their whites-only rule was not codified, it was still, you know, just, um, it, it just, they just happened to turn away any women of color unless you wanted to be on a carrier to the Caribbean or to Hawaii, in which case they would hire, uh, exotic in quotes looking women of color to add, you know, to the, to the flair of going to one of these tropical locations. So that's some disgusting tokenism happening. So, you're right. Like Taylor goes in and she challenges the system and she ends up making history. And partly because of that and also the pressure being put on uh, state commissions to then put pressure on these airlines to hire women of color, you have TWA essentially having their arm twisted and saying, OK, fine, <laughs> we'll hire this beautiful woman, Margaret Grant. Stunning, <laughs> stunning woman. Um, and there's just this slow trickle effect across the whole industry where you see airlines starting to hire a few African-American stewardesses here and there. But one thing that was really interesting in the era of uh, the Civil Rights Act around 1964, you have LBJ actually getting on the phone from the White House, calling up old Pan Am, etc., and being like, I can't do an LBJ. I wish uh, <laughs> Brian Cranston were here to, to reprise his role. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, LBJ is using his executive power to call up these airlines and basically say, look, you got to get with the times. Like You have to hire 
more black women because this is this is just this is how it's got to be. Yeah. And so that's when you start to see more uh, more black women being hired. And in the 70s, I noticed in uh, when we were researching the uniforms in particular, you start to see a black stewardess in the lineup, you know, yeah. here and there. Um, but what was funny slash not funny in looking at the numbers and how self-congratulatory these airlines were, especially in the 70s, when they were like, we've diversified. Now, 4% of our flight attendant force is African-American. Yeah. Well, and then layers, right? Because both Margaret Grant and Rose Carol Taylor were, yes, they were beautiful. They were also incredibly light-skinned black women. So you also have the colorism aspect where it was semi-acceptable to start to quote-unquote diversify um but there were some women that like Kathleen Berry talked to in her book Femininity in Flight who were like, yeah, I was I was too black. Basically, I was too dark skinned. And it's not just the airline executives who are exhibiting this kind of racism. Uh, the New York Times reported in late 1957 that part of their reluctance to diversify was based on the fear that, oh, all of these just like dozens and dozens of glamorous white girls aren't going to want the job anymore because if they're working with black women, then inherently the job is not glamorous anymore. Oh, God. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the experience that Kathleen Berry talks about in her book, Femininity in Flight, which obviously we recommend because it's <laughs> terrific. Um, these first Carol Taylors would also have to deal with racist passengers. Yeah. There was one woman, I don't think it was Rose Carol Taylor, who talks to Kathleen Berry about how a woman passenger in one of the flights shrieked when she saw a black flight attendant handing her a tray of food and refused to allow the woman to hand her her coat at the end of the flight. Yeah, I just... I think out loud to myself, I said, seriously? Well, and this is another chapter of the history that just gets covered up with the more scintillating bits of, of stewardess. Yeah, the the chance to talk about Emilio Pucci designing uniforms, to talk about women getting arrested for prostitution. That hit book, Coffee, Tea, or Me. Oh, Lord. Uh, yep, yeah, Sally still says that. Coffee, Tea, or Me? Yeah. But as all of this is going on in the background, the carriers are doing gangbusters. Business is booming. And on the flip side of that, too, we have to revisit the whole unionization issue. Yeah, they've they've achieved even more in this time. Uh, flight attendants from the late 1940s to the late 1950s started seeing monthly earnings increases of about 150 percent. So that's awesome. And by 1960, ALSA's active membership had grown to 7,000, up from 1,800 in 1953. And total membership was around 9,000 flight attendants on 30 airlines. But here it is again. A lot of, a lot of flight attendants were not pleased with ALPA's oversight. Uh, you have all of these intra and interunion fights erupting with flight attendants realizing basically that they 
lack the power to achieve independence from male labor leaders. All of these, you know, pilots basically being like, nope. Um, and in 1961 and 62, there were union elections and the flight attendants union ends up splitting in two. So you've got one that's a division of ALPA still and then a, a separate one also, which ends up becoming a local of the Transport Workers Union of America. Whoops. Hey, you're independent, but you're still subordinate to a male-dominated parent union. So, like, great. Hopefully some of you got what you wanted, but you're still not um, as independent as I think a lot of those flight attendants would have liked. Uh, same year, in 1962, flight attendants, as a pack, managed to lobby Congress to push a bill that would require flight attendants to be licensed. Remember when we talked about that from the 40s? But it failed because of lack of support from pilots and lack of support from regulators. And so at this point in 1962, the flight attendants essentially turned their attention to all of those marriage, age, and weight requirements, to, to tackling those and bringing those down because they're like, Look, we just put a lot of effort into all of these licensing and certification efforts, and, and we've got other things that maybe we can do faster. I feel like all of that was just these politicians, pilots, et cetera, just saying, ladies, 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 relax. You don't need professionalization if you're pretty. Like, you're not going to stay in this job very long, right? That's, I mean, yeah, that's basically what it was. And so to get from A to C... You had to tackle B, which is the marriage requirements. And, I mean, you still, though, at this time, have strict appearance requirements. I mean, my mother would fast. Like, she would starve herself. You had all of these women starving themselves for their weigh-ins. Um, and, I mean, it's still a glamorous job. Women are still clamoring for it. And if you look at a 1966 New York Times classified ad, you can see what they're clamoring to be. Uh, you had to be a high school grad. Single. If you were a widow or uh, a divorcee with no children, you might be considered. Um, ideally, you would be 20. Uh, if you were 19 and a half, you could apply for future consideration. Uh, 5'2", but no more than 5'9". <sighs> barely made the I cut. know. I oh, barely man. made it, too. 5'2". Um, you had to be between 105 and 135 pounds in proportion to your height. Again, that's specified. And at least 20-40 vision without glasses. Like, hyper- Crazy specific. And keep in mind, you also were going to be, no matter if you were tall and thin or short and thin, because those were your options as a flight attendant, you were still going to be shoved into a girdle to keep keep things all smooth. And a lot of uh, airlines would do the flick test. And if they flicked your behind or your waist or anywhere on you that you would traditionally have fat as a woman and it jiggled, you'd have to go get a, a tighter girdle. I want to show them a flick test for sure, right in the eyeball. Um, and you know, I mean, this, it's, it's this focus on appearance that does fuel that massive flight attendant fashion industry that everybody loves to go look at online and look at galleries. And I mean, we could do a whole other episode on that. We definitely don't have time to talk about all the fashion. Um, but I know that. I've definitely seen fabulous pictures of my mother and godmother in those in those little pastel suits. I just have to give a, a quick shout out though to uh, which airline was it that had uh, Pucci come in and I want to say it was Braniff. Yes, it was. Okay, so they had this whole wild wardrobe that included a space helmet looking <laughs> hair protector that frankly 
I wish I had because it was, it was like a, a giant plastic bubble that would go around their big bouffanted hair and keep them looking fresh and beautiful with just a little open space for their for their face for their breathing because yeah. they're human women uh yeah i mean they had there were so many crazy uh outfit gimmicks i mean you had this thing called the flying strip which to me is a little too close to landing strip for comfort but these women would wear layers and layers and layers of clothes and throughout the flight, and this was used in marketing, this was in advertisements and magazines, throughout the flight they would like take off a layer and be like, look at me, I'm in a new outfit now. And really, I just think of my mother and I'm like, God, those women must be so hot. I want to try that at work, (laughs) see if anyone notices. There was also an airline, I want to say it was United, that tried a very short-lived gimmick um, where for each dinner, the stewardesses would have to put on paper costumes corresponding to the cuisine. So if they were <laughs> serving American food, they would put on these paper, what they called Manhattan pajamas. Yeah, it was the, it was the penthouse pajamas yeah. if you were flying to New York. You had a toga if you were eating Italian food. There was a gold paper dress with a high neck if you were... I think that was going to Paris. Going to Paris. But just very strange. But eventually they actually, and this is, I'm not kidding, they ran out of the um, fireproof heavy paper material and were wearing um, flammable heavy paper material. So that that run of of a little marketing gimmick lasted a couple months also can you just imagine how loud dinner time would be <laughs> just like oh yeah oh, sorry oh sorry i just bumped into your paper i just crushed your outfit sorry kids trying to color on you with their crayons <laughs> but once the airline industry jumped the shark with their overtly sexist marketing uh, it just so happens to coincide with second wave feminism and and there is a turning point when people are like, okay, really? <laughs> really? Which which really seems to, at least it comes up in pretty much every article that you read about this, it seems to really crystallize with the Northern Airline Fly Me campaign, where you have the, the headshot of a pretty flight attendant, and it's like, hi, I'm Cheryl. Fly me. <laughs> that's, that's not heavy-handed. Yeah, um... And it was massively successful. It was a $9 million ad campaign, and it had so much spinoff swag. Like, you could get all sorts of things with, hi, I'm Cheryl, or hi, I'm Joe. Hopefully condoms included. (laughs) Uh, And and an IOU, like, hand-drawn coupon to go take a cold shower. Uh, and also you keep in mind, I mean, this is the the golden age of the miniskirt uniform that's part of creating... Sort of great expectations for for this line of work, um, and basically what was happening at this time that was reaching a fever pitch of sexism and, and objectification is that airlines, because of technological advances, because flying was becoming more and more democratized, airlines had to sell service to differentiate themselves. Like they all had the fast jet now, they all had faster flying times. They you know they all had. You know, this many seats could fit this many passengers. Um, they had to sell sex basically to differentiate themselves. And a lot of women at this point were like, okay, enough. Enough. I'm tired of getting grabbed and groped and asked on dates. And 
there's a, a Slate article that we read about this particular turning point that shows just how flight attendants were definitely no longer shrinking violets. So you had union members striking. You had um, stewardesses protesting their treatment, their exploitation. They were demanding to be taken seriously as professionals. Um, they fought against sex-based discrimination, against beauty and age discrimination. And they had a very helpful tool to do this all. They had the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in Title VII forbade discrimination on the basis of sex. So this... Flight attendants, whether they were unionized or not, suddenly had new leverage in challenging all of those BS weight marriage and age-related rules. And in 1968, the federal courts had struck down those rules prohibiting marriage and forcing the 30-somethings into retirement. And in 1970, uh, the restrictions against flight attendants getting pregnant were, quote-unquote, voluntarily withdrawn. I mean, voluntarily, yes, only because the federal government wasn't making them put an end to those rules. So women using Title VII was massively important. Yeah, because the unions had already tried to get these policies overturned, but the airlines wouldn't budge. And we should note that these kinds of rules do exist in some other countries. As recently as 2015, you have Qatar Airways, which ran afoul of the UN and was found guilty of discrimination for its policy of firing women who got married or pregnant within the first five years of employment. Five years. So they're they're trying not to have too much turnover. Right. They're like, let's get them for at least five years. And then in 1971, we have a Miami trucker named Carlos Diaz who successfully sues Pan Am, who turned him down for a flight attendant job. Uh, And he bases this all on the Civil Rights Act. And I kind of love the story of Carlos because... He just wanted to be a flight attendant. That's like all he wanted to be. Well, because his grandfather was a steward before World War II. Oh, yeah. So it was in his blood. It was in his blood. But Pan Am was like, uh, you are, are not slim, slender and sexy <laughs> enough. I don't think so. But because of that decision, the airlines have to start hiring more flight attendants. And then the following year, we, I mean, we really start to see this activism mm-hmm. snowballing. In 1972... Feminist flight attendants launched the non-union affiliated stewardesses for women's rights. Love this. Mm -hmm. Their whole thing was protesting those sexist ads and the degrading treatment. And they brought up the very good point that this hypersexualized marketing meant that passengers wouldn't take these flight attendants seriously when they were actually the ones responsible for their safety. Right. It's the same thing you see now where, like, yeah, you're just a waitress, basically. And it's like, oh, well, my mother could save your life if she wasn't the kind of person who would refuse to touch another human. So good luck getting her to do CPR. Anyway, um, in 1974, you get American Airlines flight attendant Paula Kane publishing uh, another turning point memoir called Sex Objects in the Sky, a personal account of the stewardess rebellion. And I love this. I'm like, oh, my God, 
here's like a woke flight attendant talking about objectification. And it's because she'd hooked up with stewardesses for women's rights. And she learned from them all about the terminology and realities around objectification. She wrote in her book about uh, being so sick of submitting to abusive businessmen, both physically and, and verbally. And uh, she, I think she penned the book with a co-author, but she was kind of a, she's kind of a convenient face for it because she was also very like cute and all American looking. But here she was coming as like a full fledged feminist out against the sexist treatment of flight attendants. So she was sort of the the feminist answer to coffee, tea, and me. Yeah. And, you know, also during this time in the, like, early, mid-70s, you've got more people flying. Jumbo jets are a thing now. The workforce of flight attendants, it's 40,000 by 1974. But all of this also sparks, again, those union autonomy efforts to break from their male-dominated parent unions. And from, like, 1974 to 77, you see a lot of success, a lot of flight attendant unions being able to break away from those bodies and be the independent unions that they had really been working to be for, for decades and decades. And in 1978, you see the Carter administration deregulating the airline industry. The government no longer sets the routes and fares. Ticket prices drop. More people are flying. More airlines spring up. And this is what old school airline people point to as the nail in the coffin for glamorous flight. It's no longer exclusive. When I was a teeny tiny child, um, my mother and I, you know, we would get dressed up to fly. And I remember very distinctly um, walking through the airport and these two, what to me at the time looked like ancient women, saw us and saw me in my little smock dress with a white cardigan over it. And they were like... Oh, isn't that so nice? People used to dress up to fly. We love to see that. And, I mean, my mother still says it. She is super judgy about flight outfits. So going back to the whole licensing issue that first came up in 1962. No, first came up in the 40s. Well, when they, the oh. last time we were there, it was 1962. They took it before Congress, and Congress was like, uh, you're too pretty. You don't yeah. need to be professionalized. <laughs> that didn't happen. The licensing program for flight attendants did not happen until 2003 when Congress finally mandated it because of 9-11. Yeah, they were like, oh, I guess you kind of are on the front lines of a lot of danger, aren't you? We should probably make sure that you have some sort of like official licensing to save people. I had no clue about that. Yeah, yeah. Not surprising. I mean, I was in high school, but still. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't know anything either. And I I haven't asked my mother about it. I mean, I did ask her about the whole union thing, because out of so many flight attendants who are unionized, Delta is still the holdout. Um, The most recent effort in 2015, the uh, International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers withdrew its efforts to have a union election with Delta flight attendants. There was a lot of support and there was a lot of, and go ahead, send me letters. Um, there was a lot of like intimidation on behalf of the union to try to get um, the flight attendants to, uh, to support it. Um, and, you know, I read that there was a lot of intimidation the other way too. I only know what Sally tells me. <laughs> uh, Sally's inside scoop. Sally's scoop. Oh, there you go. She can have a little corner. Um, or a little ice cream stand. Um, let's be honest, it would be a wine stand. 
Um, but that that works. That's all like play on words and literally. I think that works. Also, let's just make scoop of wine happen. Yeah, I'll take a scoop of that wine thing. Take a scoop of your wine. Um, but but one of the big conversations today, aside from is Delta ever going to unionize, um, is you know, hey, hello, sexual harassment. Oh yeah, it is not a <laughs> a, a relic of a bygone era. No. unfortunately. No, and uh, according to the International Transport Workers Federation, who represent more than 600,000 aviation workers, uh, the most common complaints from cabin crews relate to physical contact and inappropriate advances. But the thing is, most of the complaints that this uh, International Federation gets are anonymous because... Despite all the advances we've had in the on-the-ground workplace, um, women who are flight attendants and men who are who are flight attendants are still afraid of losing their jobs because it is so infrequent for sexual harassment, especially when it's coming from a passenger, to be taken seriously. And I'm glad you mentioned men because male flight attendants also experience sexual harassment. And this isn't limited to the United States either. In 2014, a Hong Kong-based study found that 27% of the Asian flight attendants it surveyed reported being sexually harassed while on duty over the previous year, consisting mostly of, quote, patting, touching, kissing, or pinching, and other forms of sexual harassment uh, they highlighted included lewd jokes, quote, staring in a sexual way, uh, showing obscene or pornographic materials, and just straight-up explicit requests for sex favors. And the majority of that sexual harassment was coming from passengers. But still, 41% was coming from fellow workers, including senior cabin crew and cockpit members. And I think it was... Heather Poole, who was a flight attendant um, who was writing over at Mashable about this, who was saying that the down route flights, I believe they're called, I guess after the flight attendants are have, have completed their shift and they're flying home, they're not working, they tend to booze up and that's when sexual harassment between crew members happens most often. Oh, and on layovers, too, I'm sure you can end up getting into some kind of sticky situations when booze is involved. Well, and Catherine Poole writes about the whole issue of the passenger perpetrated sexual harassment not being taken seriously under the mindset of, A, I don't want to be the person who is holding up all of these other passengers because of one bad apple. You know, it's the whole one bad apple mm-hmm. riding the barrel. Um, and also the whole thing of, you know what? I'm never going to see this person again. And and that mindset, though, is so is doing a disservice, it seems like, to flight attendants, because it's like, well, no, passengers shouldn't be allowed to do this. I don't care if they do get wasted. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, so it it exactly works both ways. The flight attendant who lets it go because she's never going to see him again or the passenger who's behaving badly because he's he might never see her again. But let me tell you, you see those flight attendants if you fly the same routes. Well, and yeah, and I'm not even like putting any blame on the flight attendants themselves. It's more just the The it seems like the mentality. Yeah, sort of the understanding of like, you know, you don't 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 be that person. And and if you are the one who reports it, Chances are it might like might nothing might even come from it. Uh, Poole reported on a coworker of hers who was flashed by some famous jazz musician. I am dying to know who. Some of you out there know who I assume it is. Michael Bolton. Is it Michael Bolton? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god, that'd be hilarious. No, that would not be funny. Um, so this famous jazz musician flashes Poole's coworker for an entire flight. Like every time she walks up and down the aisle. And she did her due diligence and had the authorities meet the flight upon landing. But the authorities made the call not to press charges because she was an employee, not another passenger. Oh, so this is just part of the job description. Yeah, what? And and Poole talks about that. She talks about it in this Mashable piece, and she talks about it in, in an interview somewhere else, too, um, about, like, ladies, this is what, and gentlemen, and world, like, this is what we're dealing with, with the fallout from all of that sexualized marketing, the great sexpectations of, like, the 60s and 70s in particular. We're still dealing with it now because y'all feel entitled to grab us or be gross or whatever. Um, those Those sexual assumptions are still so wrapped up in the job of a flight attendant. Well, and add on to that, too, you have the, I don't want to say subservience, but they are serving Mm -hmm. passengers, and that really, uh, you know, gets people's entitlement going. And something about the confined space, where it's it's not like you can walk away from the person, Mm -hmm. never to return. You can't lock yourself in the bathroom. Like, you, you have to serve these passengers. My mother has been known to tell passengers that she will no longer be serving them. Good. I mean, and, and Poole echoed that. She, I mean, she kind of talks about how there are the flight attendants like your mom, where it's like, you kind of have to take sexual harassment into your own hands and either just like shut the passenger down or you just let it fly, let it fly. Oh. Mm. Nor does it seem like Flight attendants are being compensated even close to enough to where, A, this should never be acceptable. But it's like, on top of this, they're not making that much money. Yeah, the median pay in 2015 was almost 45000 And uh, their wages, when you adjust for inflation, their median hourly wages actually dropped by 26% between 1980 and 2007. Um, and, and this would be one of the big reasons why you have unions um, and why people at Delta are fighting over the union issue. Yeah, because, I mean, that, that 45K is definitely a decent income. But in the U.S., you can start out making just 18000 a year. Yeah, and I hope that that's for part-time work because that just doesn't seem right mathematically at all. Yeah, but I mean, it also goes back, like, flight attendants have always had a history of basically bunking with other flight attendants to to manage to even afford oh, the yeah. lifestyle. We didn't even talk about all of the flight attendant training dormitories, the, the <sighs> stews dorms. Yeah, where, where they had to have electric fences around them because men would try to sneak in. True. It's just, ugh. it's almost stranger than fiction, all of this. I know. It really is. <laughs> Well, just I had totally forgotten until you said that about the the training dorms and that they would bring these women to like resorts or compounds built specifically for flight attendant training. And sure, there would be like a here's how you, um, you know, save someone's life, maybe. But it was mostly focused on here's how you walk, stand, uh, handle a coat um, serve a tray, all of this stuff appropriately. Wait, are you sure you're not talking about Trump University? <laughs> but, um, bring it a full circle with <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. 
Um, so I think the moral of the story is treat your flight attendant like a human. Oh, yeah. And I also have to have a this is a selfish on behalf of my mother note. Um, your flight attendants clean the bathroom. Oh, um, I, I don't know what you think you're doing when you go into the airplane bathroom and are disgusting. But just imagine me and therefore imagine my mother who is 68 years old and has to clean up after you insane people on airplanes. So just uh, that's my plea. Please treat your flight attendant and your entire crew crew staff, uh, your entire flight crew, like humans. So if Sally were here with us in the studio and we asked her what one piece of advice or request, whatever it might be, for being a good air passenger uh, would be, what do you think Sally would say? Um, Stop being a jerk. I think a lot of the entitlement, I think that a lot of people feel and the way that they feel that they can treat flight attendants and really anyone in a service position at all is, uh, is mind boggling. Um, I don't, I think we need to get it out of people's heads that they can, um, because they're in a seated position and having someone bring a drink to them that they can treat them like they're dirt. Um, just try to, try to act like a human. My mother would probably say, you know, Tell him to tell him to be nice, and maybe check your bag if you know it's too big for the overhead compartment. Oh yeah, uh, she would tell you to put your own GD bag in the overhead <clears throat> because I'm 68. I'm not lifting those bags anymore. Well, flight attendants listening, because I know there have to be some of you listening. Is this ringing a bell? I mean, because I I think that that is the danger sometimes of the whole sort of vintage nostalgia of like, oh, oh, those sexy times when all the women were just seen as wife material. But it doesn't seem like, you know, everything is fine now. Um, So I am curious to know for people who are in the air and working in the industry, whether you're a flight attendant or just in that world at all, what it's like and whether it's something that's swept under the rug or um, whether it is more of a non-issue than the stats, at least that we've been talking about, suggest that it is. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, (laughs) then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's Rosewater Collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them, so that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Here's the thing. Saving money with GEICO is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. 
he never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Okay, well, I have a letter here from Jane. She's actually responding to three episodes, uh, Lunch Ladies, Custodians, and Librarians. Um, she said, I felt compelled to email today after listening to your Lunch Lady episode because with this episode, along with the recent one on Janitors for Justice and the Librarian Two-Parter, you've managed to hit on multiple facets of my job. I'm a research librarian for a public employee union that represents custodians and food service workers. Every day I get to come to work and gather studies, reports, and news articles about different privatization and outsourcing campaigns. This information is then used to help protect the jobs of custodians and food service workers employed by school districts, cities, counties, and states. Since so often I'm reading about how private companies slash wages and benefits for their new employees, it was relieving to hear you talk about how much being in a union can help the individuals who are in these often thankless and invisible positions. One thing that I wanted to mention that I believe was left out of the librarian two-parter is how unions have also helped librarians and library workers. Along with representing custodians and food service workers, the union I work for, AFSCME, or the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, also represents library workers. While it's easy to think that unions primarily or only represent blue-collar workers and jobs, unions have had a lot of influence on professional employees' livelihoods as well. Unions help library workers fight for pay raises and equitable pay, protect against de-skilling of the workforce, and help maintain funding for continuing education. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. Your episodes are always a treat, and I look forward to all the topics you discuss in the future. Well, thanks, Jane. Well, I've got a letter here from Audrey, who writes, I just wanted to say a big thank you for your wonderful podcast that constantly expands my worldview. I wanted to thank you for helping me pass one of my two California social work licensure tests yesterday. Congrats. I struggle with test anxiety, and facing an hour and a half drive to the testing center was not helping keep me calm. I played my next podcast from Sminty and up came Welfare Queens. I found myself nodding to a lot of your points on both the pros and cons of our current system and found myself reminded of all the reasons I chose to be a social worker. Sometimes in the trenches of medical social work, it's easy for me to forget that I have an awesome job that lets me help so many people who are stuck in the loopholes of our welfare system. I went into my test inspired to kick butt and get back to social working. I passed the test thanks to a lot of study, gut reactions, and prayer. After a good cry on a bench, I headed home listening to more of your awesome feminist work. I recommend your podcast to all my friends and I'm constantly quoting fun facts I learned from Sminty. Please keep up the good work. I'm looking forward to your podcast on social workers sometime in the future. Audrey, I am so glad to hear we were helpful with you passing your test. And if you've already uh, taken the second one, I hope you passed it. I'm sure you did because you can do it. We believe in you. And if anyone has any thoughts or experiences, highs and lows that they would like to share with us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where they can send them. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about flight attendants, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben, dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.